Hello, everyone. We wanted to take a quick moment to thank you all for joining us today. This podcast was recorded and is made available to you by Whitley Penn LLP and WP Wealth LLP solely for informational purposes. The information, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast are general in nature and are not intended to be construed as the provision of financial or investment advice by Whitley Penn or WP Wealth. The information discussed in this podcast is accurate as of the day it was recorded, but may then become outdated over time. Please feel free to contact us if you have any questions, comments, or concerns in regard to the content presented. Thank you again for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, guys. Welcome to our next edition of WP Talks. Uh, today, our, our folks from our WP Wealth Group, which is our wealth management division within Whitley Penn, is going to talk about some of the most recent uh, events in, uh, in capital markets. I know this is something that uh, a lot of people have an interest in right now, so we thought it would be timely. Uh, it's a couple of weeks after our last uh, podcast that really focused on the value of working with a fiduciary and retirement planning and developing comprehensive plans. So we thought uh, a focus on the markets and some of the things that are happening uh, in the news most recently would be of interest. Uh, I'm Tom Ryan. I'm the director of WP Wealth. Again, our, our wealth management group within Whitley Penn. And today I'm joined by Matt McGee, one of our associates that uh, again, we're gonna spend some time talking about some of the recent headlines and some of the most notable events affecting capital markets uh, today. All right. Thanks, Tom. Uh, hi, everyone. My name's Matt McGee. I am an associate at the firm, and I'll be moderating the discussion today. Great. Well, Matt, why don't we just start off? And I know you, know, you and I talked about a, a few questions that we thought were, you know, top of mind or of interest. Why don't we just jump into that and, and see where the discussion goes? Yeah, that sounds like a plan. Uh, so it's been about a month since the last episode you guys did. Uh, I know there's been some ups and downs. Uh, how's it been for investors and being on the advisor side as well? So yeah, your 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 comment ups and downs, I think really defines it. You know, the, the period we've we've experienced since our last podcast is, I think, can be defined by the term volatility. It has been some of the most extreme ups and downs uh, that we've seen in, in really the market's history. And, and, and in many days, with, within days apart, that we've hit historic uh, up days and historic, historic down days. And so it's, it's been unnerving, to say the least, uh, both from the investor's uh, perspective and, and certainly from the advisor's. Um, so, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've certainly learned a lot about, um, about our, the fears that our clients are, are facing and as advisors being challenged uh, in how to respond uh, to those fears as well. You know, in most recent days, things have uh, calmed a bit. Uh, last couple of days, looks like volatility is reemerging. I think that will be the theme probably for the next several weeks and months as you know, we contemplate what the reopening of the U.S. economy looks like, and you know, every state is going to have a different schedule, and and so that's going to create a lot of uh, a lot of variability uh, in the data, and I think will add 
to the volatility along the way. So certainly been trying uh, both from the investor side and, and certainly from uh, us as advisors and working with the clients. Yeah, let's get into that a little bit. So you talked a lot about volatility and timing, as we know, is very hard to do in ordinary times, much less during circumstances like we find ourselves in today. Are you seeing people leave their seats and try to time the the various ups and downs? Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, we have had some clients that, that have a little higher risk appetite that you know, early on in some of the most painful days, we're very interested about uh, investing more into the market, you know, looking for uh, ways of getting uh, additional capital in, whether it be using margin loans or we had several clients that uh, transferred additional uh, monies into their accounts to take advantage of the discounted uh, uh, prices of stock. And, you know, it, it's funny, and I know everybody's heard it, but the old saying, the only thing people don't like to buy on sale is stocks. But, you know, we had a handful of clients that really appreciated that and, and took advantage. I think it, what resonated out of our last podcast conversation is we're a little unique in, in working with our clients in that, you know, we build an asset allocation only after we've done a comprehensive plan that, that really defines the goals and expectations that a client is searching for. And what that tends to lead us to is, is a, an asset allocation that, certainly is appropriate for the for the the lifestyle and the time frame of an individual relative to retirement you know we spend a lot of time talking about how even in extreme times such as such as we're facing now that with a with a properly crafted asset allocation the question shouldn't be you know how much do i have in stocks or bonds or whatever my asset allocation is it it should more focus on you know, how am I going to get liquidity or distributions out of my accounts to provide the lifestyle that we've set for ourselves in retirement? And so, you know, largely the asset allocation is built in, with the view of creating a long runway of, of, of stable assets to fund uh, the needs, which prevents us from having to be reactionary uh, to events in the market. So, you know, certainly I'm, I'm not going to say we didn't we didn't get calls from folks that were anxious and felt like we needed to do something. But I think once we had an opportunity to, to kind of talk about the plan, what the philosophy was, how they were particularly invested and how, you know, some of the headline news that, that we were seeing as far as negative returns and abroad indices wasn't really representative of their particular portfolio, uh, either because of diversification or, risk management with use of, of non-correlated assets. And, and so once we had an opportunity to talk through that with you know, those particular uh, clients, they realized that, yeah, that's right, we do have a plan. Uh, this makes sense. You know, markets go up, markets go down, and we're just going to uh, sit tight. So uh, not a lot of folks looking to get out of their seats, if you will, but, mm -hmm. but maybe more so folks looking to take advantage to the extent they had some gunpowder uh, dry that could uh, could re-enter or add positions to equities at a much, much discounted. Yeah, we're coming up on six, seven weeks of kind of the shelter in place. And I feel like a lot of people have gotten used to it to a degree. Uh, we might not like it, but uh, people adjust very quickly. I know I imagine a lot of people are very curious what 
uh, your take would be on on what the next couple weeks and months, call it the summer, look like for for an investor. Uh, granted, all of this is very new to everyone, but uh, we have started to adjust to it. So I'd be interested on your perspective on what you think the next, call it the summer, might look like. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I think, as I alluded to earlier, I think it's going to be you know, um, it's going to be a long runway. Uh, as I as I kind of walked into the office to get ready for this podcast, I saw our Governor Abbott uh, holding his daily news conference. And, you know, my takeaway, and, and you hear a lot about it on the evening news, that a lot of states, governors are, are starting to push and react differently as far as timetable regarding opening up their states back to whatever normal looks like. And it looks like the path to, to new normal is going to be a prolonged, gradual um, opening, depending on the results and you know the the, the further testing and and uh, virus uh, um, diagnostics. So I, I think it's going to look different uh, for a lot of different states, and I think because of that, uh, because we are you know such a diversified economy and we're not states uh, specific relative to economic activity it's going to have starts and stops relative to the stock market, relative to the bond market. Uh, we're seeing it in oil right now that the demand destruction over the shutdown has created complete havoc on prices for the commodity. And, you know, depending on how quickly or slowly we ramp up, that will continue uh, certainly in, in energy, but probably in other, other aspects of our economy. You, know, you think about some of the professional sporting uh, um, areas. I mean, how long is it going to be before stadiums pack 50 and 60 and 70,000 uh, fans shoulder to shoulder and, you know, NASCAR events and PGA tournaments, and, you know, all that has revenue uh, and, and, and implications to the economy. And so I think it's going to be start and stops. I mm -hmm. think the market will have volatility associated with it. And really until we get clarity about the virus and a vaccine and whether warmer weather has implications on it. Uh, I think there's still more questions right now than there are answers. Yeah, I mean, you hit on a lot of different things there. I mean, I was listening to Chris Fowler on a podcast and he works at ESPN and his take was that he would not be surprised if college football got played next spring to avoid playing over those cold months and the, I guess, call it fear of starting a big outbreak. And that was the first time I'd heard that, but it seemed to make sense. Uh, I wanted to, you were talking a lot about the economy. I wanted to get into that a little bit more. So um, the economy is definitely in a very tough spot. I mean, there's been 22 million unemployed in the past month that are reported. Uh, but markets last week were largely going up. Um, I mean, this week there's been some correction to that, but how do you kind of think about that and explain how there can be all of this bad news and yet stocks continue to go up? It's, it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's amazing. Uh, you know, you mentioned the 22 million, you know, we're probably going to get another really bad report this week on Thursday, probably mm -hmm. another, you know, several million. I think that number could be, 25 to 30 million by the time we're done. I know some of the state unemployment offices are still being just inundated with calls uh, on new on new claims and and but yet as as you mentioned you know the retracement from the lows of the major indices anyway were significant 
Uh, I think the NASDAQ was maybe down eight or 9% from an all-time high at the end of last week. Uh, so there, there seems to be a real disconnect. But I think that goes to kind of that theme about, you know, being able to time the market. Uh, I just, I have never been one to uh, advocate uh, the ability to know when to get out and, and to get back in. So obviously you've got to be right twice. You know, most, most people that, that play that game uh, may be right once, but they typically miss the other side mm -hmm. of that equation. Um, so you know, I think largely a couple of things have happened. And I think these are important. One is that the Federal Reserve and the Treasury were very, very proactive uh, at the beginning of this crisis. You know, unlike the financial crisis of uh, 08, 09, where Treasury and the, and the Fed were reactionary uh, to the events, um, and, and there was a lot of damage done before they uh, kind of determined their tools and how they were going to inter interact uh, with the, the economy. Uh, this time, both uh, financial houses, if you will, of uh, the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury were very proactive. So they jumped out in front of it in a huge way. Uh, the numbers are staggering. Uh, yeah, they you are. You can hardly, can hardly comprehend the trillions that are mentioned on a daily basis. And I think, you know, from an investor standpoint, I think that added some sense of, um, of relief, at least uh, emotionally, mentally, in that, uh, you know, uh, the markets kind of perceived a, a put uh, in a downside protection. And once that was really factored in, the markets really rallied from there. And what markets do, and, and they do this, you know, most times is they want to look forward. So largely 2000, the economic results of the year 2000 are largely being forgotten about. And valuations are trying to be established based on uh, what if to, uh, 2021, you know, so give us, give us six, eight months of of a you know limping to to a full uh, stride of economic activity and what does earnings look like uh, at that point? I, th I think that's largely been factored in and why uh, at least broad indices and individual stocks, for that matter, have elevated from the lows of a of a few weeks ago. Uh, I think you know in in reality decisions that are being made today on that are pure speculation. Mm -hmm. That until we come out of this and the economy gets turned on and we see the pace of recovery, uh, only then can we really uh, ascertain or put an opinion on stock valuations relative to underlying economic activity. But in the interim, uh, I think largely that's being done. Uh, the, the feeling that the Fed and Treasury have put a put to downside and then looking through to 2021 as far as what earnings and corporate activity might look like, uh, which has created the kind of the disconnect between what we what we feel and then what we see relative to stock prices. Yeah, the very good uh, answer there. I mean, at a higher level, like, I mean, you obviously read and watch a bunch of the news going on. I mean, there's breaking news every hour, every minute it seems like nowadays uh, but a lot of that can be very depressing very doom and gloom as an investor yourself like how do you balance staying in the know with everything that's going on with kind of your sanity and staying optimistic about the future yeah that's it some some days are more challenging than others obviously but mm -hmm. but you know at a, at a at a top level 
you know, having the experience of, of working uh, with clients in the capital markets for, for a fair amount of time now, you know, I've seen, I've seen several major market events and the impact to securities prices uh, through the years. And what I know for sure is that at some point, uh, valuation gets cheap enough and it re-energizes and re-motivates investors to come back in. And, and ultimately that cycle continues and repeats itself in that you get to lows and, and sometimes extreme low positions and then some years out because of capitalism, uh, because capital markets are the fuel to innovation and new product discovery and, and just making life better, that the demand for that capital uh, needs to be present in capital markets, which eventually uh, takes markets to new all-time highs. And, and you know, a lot, I know a lot of people now are questioning and debating whether you know, capitalism has been impaired to some degree because mm -hmm. of the... Uh, the interaction that Treasury and the Federal Reserve has in our credit markets and, and some of our you know, equity positions with some of the bailouts that have been provided to certain companies. But, but ultimately, you know, the fuel and the feeding source for innovation comes from capital markets. And that, that, that mechanism creates the opportunity to go to all-time highs. And, you know, one thing that I think is important as, as you're going through an extreme period, you know, capital doesn't vanish. It just it moves from place to place. Sometimes it moves to places that are are, are seemingly um, safer, um, like in times we're in now when, when money leaves risk assets and tries to find safety in cash and, and fixed income. Or sometimes it moves to areas that are deemed to be riskier and, and times are more robust and things seem economically viable. Um, you know, they, they over-concentrate maybe in risk assets. But it doesn't vanish. And so, you know, what, where money is moving right now, it's moving some, some place that gives investors the opportunity to take a breath and look at the landscape and determine kind of what, what the future looks like. But eventually, it, it, capital is always trying to chase the highest expected rate of return. And so when the dust settles a bit, when policy decisions are firmed up, when the, the, the light switch gets turned on relative to opening the economy again, capital will make an opinion about where the highest and best use uh, for return will be in the future, and it will make its way there. And it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Once you have some good results, it, it begets more capital, which which creates better results. And it's just kind of a magnet and, and a flow until ultimately valuations get stretched again and it repeats itself. So, you know, kind of to, to look back and think, you know, in times of gloom when things seem pretty difficult. You have to keep that in mind. And, you know, I have the, the advantage of actually physically managing through it with clients on several occasions, but obviously the history books are written. Uh, you look at the growth of, of a, a dollar uh, in, in equities from, you know, 100 years till now, and it's a nice, smooth, upward trending line. And you looked at any individual segment of time within there, it would look like an EKG machine with mm -hmm. all kinds of disruptive volatility. But capital markets go higher over time because that's the nature of what feeds advancement and, and productivity uh, gains within the society. Yeah. Uh, speaking of volatility, it wouldn't be a Texas investing podcast without talking about oil and specifically what happened yesterday with prices going negative. 
what are your thoughts on that whole situation and how quickly you think it might recover to something better than negative 38 bucks? <laughs> well, I tell you, it was interesting. I had a number of calls from folks that asked the question, do you mean that somebody would actually pay me to take <laughs> oil? And I said, yeah, that's exactly right. The problem is be ready to take possession of it. And so you may want to get an inflatable pool or a couple inflatable pools and put them in your backyard because you're going to, you're going to get a whole, a whole bunch of, uh, of crude being dumped on you. But that, that's the, the, the state of affairs right now, as, as, as you allude to. You know, demand destruction has been so uh, extreme in such a short period of time without the corresponding reduction in output that literally there is just no place to store production. And so folks that had purchased contracts to receive oil were willing to pay you know, upwards of close to $40 a barrel not to receive that oil. Now, that will resolve itself. You know, mm -hmm. There's nothing like a good uh, lesson in financial loss to demonstrate how one may need to reduce production. Otherwise, this trend would continue month after month. So it will resolve itself. Producers will shut in wells. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll uh, self-limit um, uh, their production, uh, and it will reduce the supply. Uh, likewise, as we begin opening up the economy, uh, demand will increase, and there will be an equilibrium at some point and prices will stabilize and then you know the mechanics of supply and demand will will reemerge but in the short term very strange things can happen and 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 we're seeing it uh certainly in the may contract and even the june contract now is trading at you know uh single digits uh, where you know a week ago oil was in the mid to low 20s uh we there was an interesting discussion i just was listening to on the uso the uh the etf that represents mm -hmm. oil uh, you know, people understand an investment can go to zero, but the question was, can an ETF price actually go negative? Because if its underlying holdings are negative, uh, it could, in theory, go negative. And if so, who pays that? Do you go back to the investor for additional capital or, you know, who, who actually is financially responsible? And these conversations would never even have been imagined in the past. So very interesting, extreme times and uh, lots of lessons being learned. Uh, this is going to be great uh, re uh, uh, resources for academics uh, in the future, and I think we'll all be smarter uh, because of it as we as we became smarter after the financial crisis. And I think likewise, you know, institutions and in the finance industry and economics will be smarter as we come out of this as well. But as far as time frame, time will fix the oil problem. Uh, demand and supply will meet in equilibrium, and fair price will be established. Uh, it may take a little coordinated effort with some of our foreign competitors that are uh, have similar motivations uh, as we do. But ultimately, I think this is a short-term phenomena. It's interesting. Most of the larger uh, integrated oil and gas companies haven't been as negatively affected in their stock price as the commodity has, because largely they're hedged out. Uh, mm -hmm into the into the future you know quite quite a ways and so this short-term disruption really doesn't impact them uh it will impact a lot of the, the smaller independent producers which obviously are you know domiciled largely in texas and in louisiana new mexico and oklahoma so in our region i think we'll certainly see damage through unemployment and through bankruptcies uh but at the end of the day the industry will become strong and the, the stronger hands will prevail and uh those that were over levered or ran weaker business operations are, you know, going to pay the price. And unfortunately that happens in a 
capitalist society. Absolutely. Uh, wanted, I had one more question for you. So interest rates are uh, very low. Uh, I would be interested on how they're affecting better or worse uh, investors given all the uncertainty uh, of our current situation. Yeah. Yeah, that's another really interesting topic as, as we talked about oil and some of these other things. So interest rates, you know, for every winner, there's a loser. And that's, that's true with stock trading. Uh, it's true with every, everybody that has a buyer and a seller. Uh, in interest rates, obviously, borrowers are loving this. You know, refinancing, new, new loans, a lot of these government loans are at just unbelievably low interest rates. So if you're a borrower, it's phenomenal. You know, your, your cost of capital is at all-time lows. You, you know, your, its effect on earnings or your cash flow is minimal. So that's all great. On the flip side, for every borrower, there's a lender. And those lenders, you know, that's largely their, their source of revenue is, mm-hmm. is the interest component. And, you know, as you know, I'm just thinking about our own client base that we represent a lot, largely a lot of uh, folks that have created wealth or, or in retirement and as, a, as such have a, a more diversified, probably more conservative asset allocation, which, you know, is made up of a fair amount of bonds. And so from an investor standpoint, you know, we're looking at a good part of their portfolio now that is basically not contributing anything to returns. Um, you know, we basically... Uh, accelerated multiple years of interest payments up front in valuation gains um, because obviously when interest rates go down, bond prices go up, they work in an inverse relationship. So if I had a bond that I bought at three, that was paying 3% and now the current market, that bond is paying 50 basis points or a half of 1%, my bond is obviously worth a lot more in, in, in my hands than buying a new bond. So I've got a big bump in my valuation and that's going to, that's help, helpful today to offset some of my losses on stocks, but going mm-hmm. forward, my yield is still essentially half a percent. And so if I had a portfolio where 30 or 40% of my positions are in fixed income or interest sensitive investments, you know, I can look for them to contributing very little towards return. Um, and that, that hurts, you know, if I have a return, uh, expectation where I need a certain amount of return or have, have forecasted a certain return to beat inflation and provide for life expectancy, uh, you know, all the, all the return now is going to have to come out of the equity side. So, uh, I don't want to increase risk, uh, to get more return. So it, it certainly is a dilemma and that's as a group you know, we're spending quite a bit of time kind of focusing on what does that mean? Do we, do we reduce our return expectations within our plans? And if we do, how does that affect the output? But very interesting uh, dilemma uh, as we see rates uh, go down to these levels. And, and again, it's important to note there's for everybody that low rates uh, help, there's, there's others on the other side of that, that low rates are hurting. You know, our banking sector requires a certain level of interest rate to cover overhead and, you know, have healthy operations. And I'm not sure that we're there today, you know, whether rates shift back in the short term or the intermediate term, certainly uh, with the amount of capital that's being uh, expended right now to try to preserve and shore up the economy. I don't think it's going to happen in the short term. So great question um, and creates great opportunities and great challenges at the same time. Yeah, Tom, I appreciate you doing this. Um, Yeah, thanks. You bet. You bet. I hope uh, everybody enjoyed it, got some value out of it. 
Look for uh, future uh, segments on Whitley Penn Talks from the group at WP Wealth. And again, thanks for joining us.